This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Man cave, waiting to see myself here appear on my computer. I'm assuming I'm appearing on yours. Uh, and, you know, I have this issue right in the morning. I can't get it. I look at myself, but I'm assuming they're there, and production would tell me if you're not. Um, can you give me a screenshot of the show, please, production? Not there yet. Anyway, we are in the Manly Warthog Man Cave in uh, the Piney Woods of North Central Florida here in the Mellon Law Studio. And uh, Mellon Law has 50 years of experience in full legal service uh, and is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida, protected 24-7 by Crime Prevention 365. So um, hopefully we'll have a shot here on my computer of what's going on. And you guys see me before I see me. I need to see me so I can see your chat. I've got a story here I want to get into in a minute. Uh, yeah, I guess until I get into that story locally, until we can get some of the bugs here worked out, um, this is kind of amazing to me, but it's not completely surprising because uh, I've got a local story coming up and I want to get set up a little bit better. It's just um, recently that I get the information on it. So uh, production, can I get the full screen here, please? Um, yeah. Anyway, I don't know if you go to Walmart much, but some of you do, some of you don't. But uh, it doesn't really surprise me what I'm about to say because, you know, there are no grocery stores on the east side of Gainesville. Um, there used to be a Winn-Dixie, which ironically is now where the sheriff's department is. And the Winn-Dixie closed down because they just couldn't keep up with the theft. And the farthest uh, uh, public store to the east is on Main Street. And on that store, as well as the one on 13th and 39th, there are folks in there with guns. That is, per se, security people. So we got a Walmart also on the east side of town here in this community, which when I was running for public office a few years back, it had not been built yet. I was an advocate for it. And uh, now I guess Walmart has taken a position about stores and troublesome parts of town, maybe even to the extent that they're going to have store closings. I picked this up off the Washington Examiner. Walmart is eyeing store closings uh, as it is grappling with an uptick in theft. Now, I suppose in all fairness, you can't blame the uptick in theft. Thank you very much. The uptick in theft on demographics. Some of it has to be the incredible cost of things skyrocketing overnight and people unable to make that up in their wages, unable to make ends meet when everything doubles, as I've said, the price of eggs, 
uh, this, that, one thing, another. And theft, I guess, and crime would just be an ancillary to the rising cost of living, which really can't be made up in salaries rapidly enough to keep up with the rising cost of living and the loss of value of the money. So Walmart is eyeing store closings. The CEO, who is a guy named Doug McMillan, he uh, said Tuesday that shoplifting is higher than what it has been historically. And the shoplifting, Walmart says, is going to force them to even higher prices for goods. Higher prices than inflation is forcing. You know, Walmart also sells groceries. Higher prices than, um, therefore, can't keep up with wages on the employees. They've automated quite a bit more to try to do away. But that means you have people not working and replace automation. And McMillan says that a lax approach from prosecutors handling shoplifting cases is probably going to lead to lead to store closures for Walmart. Now, you know, I, I we've been talking for quite a bit here about the attitude towards crime and how we have these prosecutorial uh, slaps on the wrist for things that just keep being repeated until out the end of the criminal behavior comes a convicted felon who never, by the way, pays back that which he took. If he paid back that which he took, he could vote. Well, interesting. Think about this. These Walmarts are big footprints on the ground. Um, Closures of Walmarts because of theft? Wow. Now, they've got safety measures in place already, so say at the CEO. And they've got uh, security measures. Uh, Depending upon the store location, those security measures, as I just alluded to with Winn-Dixie and Publix, can be quite heavy, quite prominent and visible. So law enforcement privately is staffing some of these stores in an attempt to keep them from closing. We've already got that situation here in our community with a couple of uh, stores, one of which already closed and ironically became the jail. So it's a... particularly ramped up since Walmart was the center of national attention recently after a store manager shot and killed six people and injured four. And uh, this suspected gunman uh, then died, of course, from a shootout with the cops. And they believe that he actually killed himself before the cops could kill him. So now on top of that, according to the Washington Examiner article here, There is an employee of Walmart who's filed a lawsuit accusing the company of negligence for even allowing that person to become a manager in the first place, despite receiving numerous reports that he was threatening and harassing employees. So isn't that something? There's this constant pressure in our culture. It looks as if this is the case to forgive and explain away criminal behavior as if it were not the criminal's personality or character or actions 
it was the action by a confluence of circumstances that left the poor hapless soul, became the criminal, no other choice than to become a criminal. You know, if that's the case, it's not the first time this has been written about. You can go back and read Charles Dixon, uh, he, the tale of two uh, Dickens, the tale of two cities. Uh, I, I, that was about the rise of the industrial society in England, uh, which created these haves and have nots. And here, if this is the case, that uh, we're creating an entire society of lawless people because the government that runs them can't stop spending their money, then we got another recipe for how to destroy the United States. I thought I'd put that in the narrative today in the classroom for you to think about. Um, let's see if I can, yeah, hello everybody, Ray Stern. Um, yes, uh, these thefts are the direct result of lax or no prosecution stemming uh, from this um, justice system. That's probably what uh, you're thinking of. Well, I have got a uh, local story here that I like to share with you that is really kind of incredible. One of the reasons we're a little late getting queued up here is we were trying to show this to you uh, on the screen. You may go to the Alachua County website, Alachua County website for the county commission, and go to the three minute, 20 second timestamp of yesterday's uh, Alachua County Commission meeting, and you will see one of the darndest conversations you have ever seen in your life. Well, that's a stretch. You know, I hyperbolize, okay? But here's what you're going to see. And let me lay the background for you yet one more tedious time. One more tedious time. And it has to do with how items get on the agenda for the public to vote on. Now, if it's something the commission is in favor of, it's one of their, let's just use the popular belief that it's one of their favorite sacred cows, the environment, by a simple three vote out of five, they can put a referendum on the ballot for the public to vote on. And they do it. For 20 some years, I'm telling you now, because I've been involved in this for 20 some years. For 20 some years, the county commissions have refused to put single member districts on the ballot for people to vote on. Why do you think they did that? When they, on the other hand, would put environmental issues on the ballot in a snap of a finger. Well, they were afraid, I guess, wouldn't you, that if they put single member districts on the ballot, it might actually pass. And if it passed, it would completely fracture their power-based way of doing business. And basically the way it is, is the Democrat Party running the primaries so that in the primaries, a conservative, sensible Democrat 
doesn't make it. It is only a progressive liberal Democrat or one who can play the game really well and get to the commission and actually act as a conservative Democrat. And there's only been one in 20 years who did that. And that was Lee Pinkerson, who was really a Republican. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing, but he became a Democrat in order to get elected and acted as if he were a lefty Democrat, but actually got on the dais once he was elected and voted sensibly, but never got anything done. Was always outvoted. Could never get roads or any of that thing. Never did get anything done. But they tolerated him because he wasn't a threat. He, I, we call him Weather Vane Lee because he, would, he sort of went whichever way the wind was blowing. He didn't really have any starch to him that would stiffen up and and actually, you know, advocate in a sort of confrontational way because he knew he'd be booted off. So we have, low these many years, 20 years, a county commission in its various forms, sometimes barley, sometimes not barley since he's off, that would refuse to, or the three out of five vote, put to the public to make up their mind, yay or nay, whether they wanted to be governed by single member districts. So since they wouldn't do that, they could have done any commission meeting coming up on any election. They would use the Charter Review Committee. The Charter Review Committee were their lackeys they appointed the members of the Charter Review Committee and the members of the Charter Review Committee were, guess what? Extensions of the county commission. And the Charter Review Committees, over 20 years, they meet every 10, in my history of this, would never, ever put single-member districts out to the public to vote on. So that left the third way to get on there. And that is by laborsome petition, expensive, the public could go get enough signatures in the community. I think it's one-tenth of the voting population. So let's assume it's 150 for round uh, numbers, 150,000 registered voters. You get 15,000 good petitions, which means they have to hold up under supervisor scrutiny and there's a window by which you may present them which means you got pressure on you and the notion that is false is that you can just stand on the street corner and people will sign that petition quickly and rapidly but that's not the way it works because people don't understand their government so you have to stand there and explain it to them you can't do it in time to get it on the ballot the third way. So what you end up doing is having to raise money, raise the petitions by hiring a professional petition company to get the petitions. And each petition generally then costs about three bucks a signature. So you take 15,000, so you better have 20 to be good. So you take three times 20 and you have $60,000 you've got to come up with. You've got to come up with it. 
in a specified amount of time to get this thing done. Well, it never happened. Nobody could do it. It's too impossible to load. The last way is the way that incur, occurred this time with representatives and senator, the senator and the representative from our district, which they're no longer of our district, by the way, because of redistricting for the state house and let and Senate. This time, got it on the ballot by a legislative decree, which is miraculous because the Florida legislature really doesn't care about Alachua County. The Florida legislature is Republican. They just think Alachua County is a bunch of oddballs and let them die on the vine. Just let them be quirky and do their thing and screw up everything. We're not going to get involved with them. But this time, they did. And guess what? The petition got on the ballot by legislative decree and it passed. So go to three minutes and 20 seconds, three hours and 20 minutes, I'm sorry, three hours and 20 minutes of yesterday's county, and we get the link, we can get the link and we're gonna put it on War Top Bulletin Board. We've got the link, but we can't open it right now. We're gonna get around that somehow, we're gonna work on that. Um, go to that timestamp, and you will hear <clears throat> Ken Cornell. Let me take a sip of coffee because this is amazing. First of all, I'll make a grammatical error. He says, I've had no less than 20 emails. Well, let me give you a little grammar lesson. Less is for what cannot be counted and fewer is for what can be counted. So there's less enthusiasm, but there are fewer people. Okay. So he said he had less, he, he had no, received no less than 20. He should have said received no fewer than 20. Things like that just tell me that I'm dealing with a functionally illiterate person. But anyway, there's a lot of them around. Most of them, most people are. Let's put that aside. He says, I've got about 20 emails from people who want to know how they can put this petition back on the ballot, put this issue back on the ballot. And then he feigns ignorance as if he doesn't know. Well, I, I guess, I guess three of us up here could put it on there. And Priyaza or whatever her name is, I never can't get that woman straight in my mind. Oh, jumps right in. It's like an old home week now with these commissioners. They don't have anybody to object. They all agree. They're just up there. Hello, how you doing? What'd you have for breakfast? I mean, it's chummy chum. So they're all over chit-chatting as if they don't know what they've done. And they don't know what they can do. They know darn good and well what they can do. Three of them can say next election, well, let's put single member districts back on the ballot. Well, why do you do that for 20 years? I, I, you, can you understand what I'm saying here to you? Why didn't you do that for the last 20 years? Well, why do they want to do it this time? Because they didn't think it passed, but it did. So now they're going to try to figure out a way to undo it. So 
Cornell orders, or really doesn't order, but the, the attorney is oh so anxious to please, uh, to come up with memos that he can use, the commission can use, to tell the public, the concerned public, by the way, his concerned public, not the public, to tell the concerned public how they can get the thing on the ballot. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to predict what's going to happen. The concerned public is going to run into the same log jam that the, any concerned public will run into. You have to get petitions. You have to get money. So what's going to happen when the concerned public learns that? They're going to come back to the concerned commission and say, gee whiz, we can't raise that kind of money. Well, three of you put it on the ballot, and I'll bet you a dollar to a note three of them will. Whereas they wouldn't before. I hope you understand this lesson in civics, because this is really what it's about. How to hang on to power, how to deceive the public, how to appear as if you're just one more gentle guy who's listening to the citizen input. It's the biggest bunch of poppycock you've ever heard in your life. Absolutely not so. You got a prime example of it. Three hours and 20 minutes into that meeting yesterday. If I can get that thing up on, on the site, I'll get it up on the site for you. But I want you to see it. It'll blow your mind. Particularly when you have the background I'm giving you on how this works. Now, the story doesn't end here. No sooner did we get word of this, and I want to thank Jennifer Cabrera for this, of Logical Chronicle, who will end up writing about this probably tomorrow, who was in the audience, bless her heart. She sits in these tedious meetings and listens to them. She signaled out to the outside free world, my God, you won't believe what they're doing, so to speak, that kind of signal. We immediately got it. I got it. A couple other people got it. It whistled around our group right quickly. And we responded. At least two of us did. I'm not going to mention, I'm going to tell, tell you that I responded. But the thin-skinned water boy received a couple of instant communications from us. Okay, you want to do this? You want to do this, Ken Cornell? Get because he brought it up. He's the one faking as if it just was innocent response to innocent public inquiry. Don't you dare believe that. Okay, you want to get involved in this? I personally texted him to and he never replied. I said, Ken. You really want to get a single member district tiger by the tail? Well, hello, this is going to be fun. He doesn't know the hailstorm he's going to get. If he thinks there was money raised before, which had to be raised to counter their public, you realize what kind of public megaphone they've got? They're sitting up there on your dollars at the dais, bringing this up again because of a 
alleged 15 or 20 emails. Do you know how many emails this thing has received in the last 20 years asking them? I, 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 I didn't want to go there. So it's bogus. His public stance is bogus. They want their power. But meanwhile, as I reported to you, the national NAACP is all over single member districts. They love them. They fight for them. They want them. It ensures at least if you carve it up properly, you're going to have black representatives. A single member district here would guarantee in perpetuity a chuck uh, 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 chestnut on, on, on the commission. It might not guarantee a progressive black on the commission. It might signal a sensible Democrat black on the commission. They're not even willing to risk that. I felt I felt that really. Let me see if you got any response to this. Uh, Okay. All right. I'm just looking, checking my chat line here. This is um, worth noting. We're breaking the story here. I'm sure Jennifer Cabrera will write about in the Logical Chronicle since she's the reporter on the spot. I want to thank her from the tip. Uh, and I doubt you'll see this at all on Channel 20 News. And uh, I'm just getting a text message here. This is kind of funny. Um, we tried to provide you with a clip of that meeting, just that clip, and uh, my help here in the studio, outside the studio, texted the county and said, why can't we open this clip, which we clipped out? And the, uh, uh, was answered, the question was answered, well, you have to contact Mark Sexton for permission. Hey, buddy, there's your transparent county commission. There's your transparent county commission. That's the guy that took the county car to Miami and ran it over the transvestite um, years ago. That's the one we used to play on the radio. You got to ask my good buddy, Mark Sexton, uh, permission, permission to take that part. Now, get this now, get this. Permission to take that part and put a link to it up on our screen. Amazing, my friends, amazing. I just got, this just came through while I'm sitting here. Um, it's, uh, it's quite something else. Well, that's my story locally. The other story locally is the gun buyback by the cops. You know, all this, it ain't going to have a single thing to do with crime. Um, and, and <laughs> you know, that's the biggest hocus pocus. If you believe that, you know, you believe the old story, you got swampland in Florida. You believe that the GPD cops are going to go out with a big program and make a dent in crime. You've got to be thinking. You've got to be nuts. It ain't going to happen. I mean, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> you know, the... 
the Gainesville Sunset has published this big deal about how uh, Lonnie Scott and his crowd is going to go out and they're going to engage the public. What a bunch of bull. It hasn't got a thing to do with anything. It's crazy. I mean, it's really nuts. You know, it, you, you, all, after a while, you live, you believe really live in a funny farm when you see this kind of stuff coming, coming, coming in all sorts of forms, in all kinds of ways. You don't ever get a break from it. And uh, a lot of people just, you know, somebody here is going to go out and play pickleball. Another guy is going to go uh, take care of, uh, I don't know, something else. They, they, you know, they don't even, they just take it for granted that the world works and, you know, it doesn't affect them, you know. <laughs> they could care less. I mean, they've got to absolutely, you know, they've got to go uh, do their thing. Uh, at least they do watch. I guess I appreciate that. And uh, hopefully uh, they have read the note in a bottle. But, uh, you know, it, it, if you, it's easy to manipulate people who don't know they're being manipulated. I guess that's one of the themes here. So uh, we'll be back in a moment after we have the weather at the award Scott Files. Stay tuned. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners,
Hello? What's happened there? Why'd that happen? What do you mean? How do we go off? Well, I don't know how long. Tim, please let me know how long you, what's the last thing you heard. I'm watching the chat line. Thank you very much, Tim Martin, for uh, putting the rumble. I'm, I'm no audio. I'm wondering now if we're getting audio. Um, I'm getting a good now. Somebody saying, I'd love to hear what you were saying. I don't know how this happens. It kind of, uh, I'm going to look into this. Um, so was lost at the break. Okay. Was lost at the commercial. Um, lost at the sponsors. Okay. I'm going to start the story over again. And I'm assuming, unless I hear back from you chatting people who tell me more than I otherwise would know. Um, this is Pearl Harbor, remember, from my personal family experience. And as I've gotten older, I've realized how much important it is to tell these stories to people who don't have a clue about Pearl Harbor and how it's affected their lives. Um, you have to be of a certain generation to have the narrative I'm about to share. So I'll get the message. Thank you, Tim. I'm back on FBN Rumble. Somebody flipped the switch, Tim. Um, the, my mother and my father and my brother went to Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, in uh, the, the, the uh, at the time, December 7th, 1941, having a picnic lunch because my uncle was training to be eventually the crew chief on the B-17 bombers. My father had already graduated from the University of Illinois in engineering, civil engineering, had a tenant's commission because he took ROTC. And they had spread out the uh, um, tablecloth on the table, set out the sandwiches, uh, had a little radio and the radio crackled about Pearl Harbor. They all looked at each other stunned. Um, the, my mother tells the story that from that moment on, uh, they quickly finished their lunch in silence and got up and went their separate ways. And for my mother, that was the, pre the, the, the big moment. My uncle went off to training for war. My father went off to war, training first, which was ironic because they trained him in the desert to fight Rommel in Africa, and they sent him to the Pacific Theater. He never could get over that. So what happened then? Guess what? I was in my mother's womb. I never knew my father. When I was born, I, I don't, I never knew him. I never knew him for four, for four years of my life. He was gone. And my mother was gone. My mother had to go to work. I was left with her mother, people in the countryside. And later I learned that this was not an uncommon situation, that young people who had a young family had to rely totally on their parents to take care of their children because they couldn't take care of them. And later I read a book called The Painted Bird by Jerzy Kaczynski, a Polish Jew who wrote about this very phenomenon in Europe where the parents of, of children realized we got to at least save the children. 
we got to save the children. So they sent the children to the countryside to live in the small villages. In my case, I went to the countryside to live in a small village in a rural community on a farm. In a farming community. That's where I was for the first four years of my life. It was a wonderful place. Absolutely fantastic. I was loved. I was taken care of. But I didn't know my mother. Certainly didn't know my father. Didn't know my uncle. I just knew old people. I came to call my mother's mother who took care of me, old mom. Because I had, I knew I had a mama, but I, I didn't ever see her. The only time I ever saw her was in a nightgown once in a while, late at night, when she would come home from work and she, the nightgown was blue. So I called her blue mama. So I had two mamas. I had blue mama and I had old mama. That's how, I, that's how the war affected me at that moment. But obviously, they had time to work with me because by the time I was four years old and went to kindergarten later, and I'll tell you that part of the story, I could read. In fact, when I was five years old, I called the square dance from memory for the uh, K through six of our school I was at. Because when I was five, my father came home. First time I'd ever seen him. That I remember. And I was immediately taken away from the warm womb, if you will, of the rural community that had taken care of me for the first four or five years of my life. And immediately swept away on a journey that I realize now was not anywhere normal because when my father came back, surviving the Pacific Theater, they didn't have back then that I remember all these names for uh, the violence and how people reacted to them. He just came back and went to work as an engineer. And we moved to the south to build locks on the Pearl River. And I lived on an old plantation with my parents, but I never saw my father much. And I went to a little school there where I called the square dance. And this whole thing began to be a nomadic journey as my father would complete a job, go to another town, complete a job, go to another town, because my mother always explained he was trying to catch up for the four or five years that the war took out of his life. And so he was frantic to make up for what he was bound to have started on. He eventually rose to be the vice president of a big international heavy construction company. But I got to tell you, friends, smoked three packs of cigarettes a day and drank a fifth of whiskey. What was that? What was that? It was the war. It was the war. And let me tell you something. He and I never got along. I never, ever got along with him. And my mother used to explain it's because you two don't know each other. Well, later I learned it's because if you take a child out of a home into another home, it's exactly as if I'd been an adopted child and that family that adopted me had to give me up. That's a big psychological moment in a young person's life. So he and I never got on the same page. And so by the time I was in high school, 
I was 15 when I was a senior, and I always blamed my father for for being pushing me. But as I got older, and after my father died, I realized it was my mother who had pushed me because she had taught me to read before I ever went to school. And I, I learned one of the odd things about fate, that my father had argued against it, me skipping grades, but my mother had argued for it, and she had won. So by the time I was graduated from school, I, I didn't have any aspirations. I didn't want to do anything. My whole family was disrupted, and that's when I was sent off to military school. But in military school, I kind of was taught by nothing but World War II combat veterans. And man, was that ever a great interaction for me to have been taught by these World War II combat veterans, both from the Europe theater and from the Pacific theater. And from that, I learned a whole lot of things about discipline and a whole lot of things about having your life together. And I had really basically then given up on ever being a part of the family because there was no family because of the disjointed relationship, if, I, if, if you will, I have with my father. Never, never was repaired. For me, that was the personal loss. Looking back on it, that Pearl Harbor rendered from my life is that I never had that relationship. Now, let me tell you what that means when I see a kid growing up without a father. This is all how World War II has affected me, Pearl Harbor. When you see one of these kids, I'm going to stay away from the race issue. I'm just going to say a young man without a father, you've got a recipe for trouble. You've got a recipe for a troubled male. Because the male needs a strong father figure. By that strong, I don't mean punitive. I mean one that will guide and teach and help that young man become a man. There's a cliche about this. When you see these heavyweight champions, quite frequently they'll have, I love mom, tattooed on their bicep. They were raised by their mothers. They don't have fathers. How did they turn out? They turned out violently. For them, they learned a discipline in the ring. But when you see a young man without a father, I can relate to that. And particularly when you see a young man with a father who was an abusive father, and I can relate to that. Because I never, ever lived up to what my father expected of me. Because he, looking back on it, was a troubled, very deeply troubled individual. So Pearl Harbor, on the other hand, we learn to work, take responsibility for our behavior and to keep our shoulder to the rock and keep on keeping on. And the work ethic was huge, big, all through our family. You kept, you got up and went to work. Now I'm concerned that that, well, you know, was the last war the United States fought. Nothing since then was a war. Korea was what you, a conflict. I used to draw and watch the map of 
MacArthur in Korea every day. I was so fascinated with 38th parallel, Pusan, Seoul. I, I, you know, I was absolutely engrossed in this. I used to be a cartoonist and I would draw the F-86 Sabrejet. I had these mock battles I would draw because I grew up reading Dick Tracy and Red Rider. And so I had a little comic strip that had to do with the Korean War. And dogfights were big. We had the Super Saber and the Saber from Russia. Then we had the, uh, 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 no, the MiG, we had the MiG from Russia and the Super Saber and Saber from us. And we had these dog, they had dogfights. So I tra tracked and followed all of that. I was very much involved, even as a kid, I was very much involved in listening to Eisenhower when he became the president because I knew he'd been a, a hero in the war. I knew all about that. It just tracked me. The war tracked me all of my life. And when it came to Vietnam, I've told this story before. That my brother and I, who incidentally got along with my father very well, because he was born after the war, knew my father from the moment he was born. They got along great. Not me. So what I learned about the war is that some people really could never catch up with its absence. You can't make up that absence. It's very, very, very difficult to make up that absence. I mean, for the longest time in coaching, the coaches I coached with were ex-combat vet veterans of wars. Now, what my father said to us about the Vietnam War, he said, they're not going to try to win that war. And, you know, he wasn't for it. He says, that's just a political action. We've already been through Korea. And, you know, MacArthur was fired by Truman for going across the Yalu River. And what were you supposed to do? So we haven't had a war, a declared war. Ironically, we've had a quote unquote war on poverty, which is a complete misuse of the term. Because the word war means, and the Vietnam guys watching the show will know this, you eliminate with extreme prejudice, which means you kill. You eliminate with extreme prejudice. So now we got a war on poverty. What are they talking about? That's not the right language. A war on poverty, you don't kill poverty. Poverty is an abstraction. You kill people. You destroy cities. Look at the war. There's a war going on between Russia and Ukraine. That's a war. A war on poverty doesn't exist. A war on, you know, should never have been called that. So I'm a product of Pearl Harbor. And I have had friends who've now died who were older than I, who were Marines in World War II, who would not ever get near a Japanese-built automobile. Never. Anything affiliated with Japanese, they wouldn't touch it. They fought them. They fought them. They couldn't get it out of their system. And one of my dear friends who died when he was in his 90s, who was a Marine all through the tough grunt Marine and Iwo Jima and places like that. In his later years, 
we spent time together when I, I knew he was, he couldn't stop crying. He would say to me, why am I crying? And I'd say, just go ahead and cry, man. It's the war coming back on him. I mean, age 90, it jumped out on him, came out of nowhere. It never got out of his system. My father, it never got out of his system. So that's my memory of Pearl Harbor. Uh, I would, of course, I've never been to Hawaii. I have no real interest in going there. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, excite me too much. Um, so I wanted to take a little time out on December 7th, 1941, um, 2022, because I don't know if anybody really of the younger generation knows these stories. And uh, my father was very relieved that Truman dropped the atomic bomb. He was scheduled to be in the amphibious landing of Japan. He was on a troop ship off the coast of Japan. And one of the deliberations was because they 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 taken these islands and working their way toward Japan. And they'd taken them very ferociously in these ferocious fights with the Japanese, whom he always said were tremendous fighters. I mean, really tough, tough fighters. And he was scheduled amphibious assault on Japan when Truman dropped the atomic bomb. And he was tremendously relieved because he said we would have been slaughtered. If you think D-Day was expensive for us to land and liberate France, and by the way, I hope they're grateful. I hope they're grateful. Uh, by golly, the conjecture is it would have been much, much worse. Because here is the problem. D-Day at France was liberating France from Germans. Going into Japan was going into someone's home. And human beings will fight to the death to protect their home. As I talked about yesterday, it's the reason Lincoln had to get Sherman to burn Atlanta. Because the North had invaded, invaded the Southerner's home. And the Southerner was going to defend his farms, his families, his children, his livestock to the death. And the only way he could be defeated was for Grant to use seven men to kill one rebel soldier. Grant was willing to do that. He was willing to sacrifice seven Union soldiers to kill one rebel soldier because he knew that's what it would take. Because they were going into the home of the Southerner. And conversely, the biggest mistake, Longstreet says, Lee made was going into Pennsylvania. Don't cross the Long Valley and try to go into Pennsylvania because it will not, all of a sudden you will, have, Lee said, I want to take it to their home. I want them to know what we feel. And it gave, and there were a lot of people in the North who were not against the South, by the way. We're very ambivalent. Until then. So that's what Pearl Harbor has done. It's put all this in focus for me. Um, right now, 
the United States of America is probably strong enough, at least in my lifetime, where it won't physically be invaded by an outside force. It's got Canada on the north, Mexico on the south. Uh, Castro had actually begged Khrushchev to bomb the United States, but that never came off. Fortunately, I was involved with that when I worked at Martin Marietta Missile Factory as a, as a uh, uh, there in Orlando. We went on nuclear alert in that factory. Um, so who, hold, who holds the future? Uh, we've got too many big weapons to go to war in a furious way. As we've talked about, one submarine can bring on nuclear winter. So I don't know what it's going to be for the future generations. It's um, yet to be written and yet to be lived, I suppose. But hopefully that will help them understand that the effects of these wars are long, long reaching, particularly on the young people, particularly on the young people. I shared with you the story of the, the Vietnamese student I had who came here in my class and uh, at the end of the first day of instruction, bowed and said, thank you for instructing me, sir. Never had, never have had, never in 40 years of teaching did I have a United States student do that. And uh, that, that he said was such an opportunity to sit in a classroom and be taught. And I, I remember I, I told you that his parents arranged so he could be picked up by uh, a United States vessel off the coast of uh, Vietnam and taken to the United States, where he fit into a Vietnamese culture here that was established by then. It sort of took care of him, looked after him. But he was a fantastic kid and uh, really appreciated because he had something he could remember as a contrast. So hopefully you got a little bit out of that. It was a moment of personal privilege and indulgence and uh, I'll uh, wish you a happy day. Warhol Command Center out.